Hello and welcome to Let's Talk University of Bradford, the podcast that looks at all things Bradford. My name's Chris and I'm your host. Today we're looking at the Continuing Bonds Research, a project led by the University of Bradford, with our guests, Dr Karina Croucher. Hi, I'm Karina. I'm a lecturer in archaeology at the University of Bradford. And Dr Ellie Bryant. Hello, um, I'm Ellie. I'm an associate professor in psychology at the University of Bradford. So this research is really interesting and I think it's um, something, a topic that not very many people kind of openly are aware of or talk about openly. Could you give me a brief overview of sort of what the project looked at and what its uh, aims were? Yeah, so the Continuing Bonds Project was an interdisciplinary collaborative project which aimed to get people talking about death, dying, bereavement and loss in an easier way to open up and challenge some of the barriers there are to talking about the topic. And in particular, we used archaeology as a starting off point for many of those conversations. So with the psychological aspects, we have lots of models to describe how we deal with death and grief and how we converse about it and what our experiences are. So what the psychology in this project looked at is how these models could apply to the past, but also that our experience doesn't necessarily fit within these models. Our experiences can be very, very diverse. It doesn't have to be pigeonholed. And it's just to try and get people to see how their experiences can be um, completely acceptable, fine and normal if it doesn't fit into a set pattern. Yeah, I guess it's about kind of recognising that there's not a one-size-fits-all and there's not a right way to grieve, there's not a right way to deal with death, but it's individual and that's it's often a non-linear process. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so it's an interdisciplinary project, obviously includes psychologists, archaeologists. So my understanding, it also includes like healthcare professionals, uh, including sort of end of life uh, specialists and things like that. Could you just sort of explain how they all tie together and how that uh, impacted how you approached things? Yeah, absolutely. On the original Continuing Bonds project, it was a collaboration between myself as an archaeologist, um, Dr. Laura Green, who at the time was a lecturer in nursing at the University of Bradford, and also Professor Christina Fall, who is based down at a hospice in Leicester, and she's a professor of palliative medicine. So we all work together to bring our different disciplinary perspectives uh, to the topic of uh, death, dying, bereavement and loss and, and opening up those conversations. We also had uh, postdocs on the project, um, Lindsay Booster and Jennifer Days, who brought in additional expertise in both archaeology and psychology too. So Karina, you've uh, talked about the collaboration there. Could you just tell me a little bit more about how that collaboration between the different disciplines worked, particularly sort of the end of life care aspect? Yeah, absolutely. So the original project, we ran workshops um, for health and co social care professionals and students. And many of those were from hosp the hospice sector and from the end of life care sector. And it was really interesting that even though they were working with a dying on a daily basis, they still didn't really have the space and the freedom to talk about the topics and to think about what they really felt. So it was really important for us to actually think about the different sectors that were working really at the, at the cutting, edge, cutting edge, is that the right word, of this sector to think about how archaeology could, could, could contribute a new perspective to them and bring something very different to their experiences and their working and their vocabulary that they wouldn't normally come across in their day-to-day -day working lives. And it did open up conversations with people as well, didn't it? The 
it doesn't matter what their background was, even if they've been working in the field for a long time, the archaeology helped people discuss new things and think in a different way. So it was very beneficial. I think what the archaeology does is it's removed from our personal experiences. So it's an easy way in to start talking about the topics. We can um, think about what's distant and very unusual to us. And that just prompts dialogue and prompts discussion. That's really interesting. And I think cutting edge is the right terminology to use. You know, this has never been done before. It's a, it's a new way of looking at things and sort of tying together different um, specialties which haven't been tied together before. So I definitely agree that we, we can definitely call this cutting edge. Um, just talking about how that kind of led to those conversations, I would imagine that the psychology element of that was very important to sort of contextualise those and make sure that things were going in the right direction and this was helping people with their resilience and their approach to things and it wasn't going to lead anyone down any more upsetting paths. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yes. So, um, with all these conversations that we had, we had to make sure that it was a safe space so people felt they were able to talk about things that could be personal. But as Karina says, um, when you bring in the archaeological examples, they are quite distanced from people, distanced from people's experience currently. So it is a it is a safe way to get people to think about their own personal experience of things that can be very sensitive, and it's up to the individual whether they want to discuss that in the group or whether it just makes them reflect and um, by opening up the, these conversations about how death has been treated over time it makes us realize that there isn't a normal way to do things and a lot a lot of the comments we've had is oh I felt so bad about how I was dealing with this I thought I should have been over it in a year or I felt I should have been doing things differently I, I felt like I should still be crying or not and we can see that actually over time, however you deal with it is pretty normal. Um, so with the psychological part of that, it's to help people see that their experiences are very diverse and not linear. And you can feel like you're going backwards and forwards. And that's completely fine. That's normal. That's healthy. Um, we all deal with things very individually. And I think the psychological part of the projects helps us to realise that and really get to grips with um, normalising what can be a very um, turbulent journey for some. That's really interesting. So you've kind of got the archaeological element providing um, the context for the conversation almost. And then you've got the people that have worked in this for a long time kind of bringing their experience, but also having it to be a learning opportunity for themselves as well as the people participating. And then you've got the psychological element who, again, can learn from this just like everybody can but also help people understand the things they're discovering about themselves and make sure that that journey is positive and helpful and safe yes what other things did the project involve and what other undertakings were involved to help you have a well-rounded understanding of what you're trying to achieve here so what we did was within the workshops we'd show them archaeological materials so case studies throughout time and some ethnographic examples as well. So what happens around the world today? And we then were trying to find an evidence base from one of my um, observations, which was kind of a principle behind the project, which was as an archaeologist, if I was ever talked about what I did, I particularly uh, work with funerary archaeology. So looking at how people treated their dead through time. And whenever I talked about this, I realised kind of quite... Um, 
accidentally almost, but whenever I started talking about what I do, it would spark conversations that people would start talking about how unusual some of the practices I deal with are. And then within minutes, they'd often start talking about what we do today and then start talking about their own experiences, hopes, wishes, fears, in just a really natural way. But if I'd just gone up to them and said, would you like to talk about death? All the barriers would have come up. But because we'd started talking about archaeology first, they were just more relaxed and it just came naturally. So what we wanted to do with a Continuing Bonds project was provide an evidence base that this approach worked. So part of the project was about evaluation. So we um, had... We surveyed people before and after the workshops and then longitudinal um, follow-ups. So we spoke to them one to three months later and again a couple of years later to see about any lasting impacts that we've had from the workshop we did. And that's where the resilience part comes in. Um, if you if people become more comfortable talking about death and dying and become more comfortable with their own experiences and their own feelings, this, this builds resilience and when we inevitably deal with death in our lives, um, it's easier maybe to cope with, or maybe not easier, but we're aware of different ways we can cope and the way we are coping isn't weird or something like that. Yeah, and I think because we can normalise talking about death and dying in this way, it means it's not such a challenge when we do need to, t to talk about it. If people become more relaxed about talking about it, realise that death is a natural part of a life cycle and it isn't a kind of failure of medical science a lot of the time but actually that acceptance can enable people to accept death but that's not just about what being morbid this is about to help them appreciate life and appreciate living and appreciate what they have day to day it's about being healthy it's a healthy perspective and it helps well-being too but also another part of the um what the workshops was um, particularly with the young people, the Dying to Talk project was a co-production part. And that is um, where with the, with the young people, we worked with them to develop tools um, and outputs, videos, all sorts of creative outputs, um, which were designed by them for them. The Dying to Talk project was a collaboration also with uh, Jane Booth at Wolverhampton University and Eva Sutton from University of Bradford. Got us thinking about, you know, what young people need in their own language. So we used the, the resources that they produced in Festivals of the Dead, which we ran in local schools to get them talking about um, the topic and engaging in some activities. So some of the types of activities we had in the Festival of the Dead. Uh, decorating your own coffin, um, death masks, that was a very popular one. Um, making grave goods, so things you would take with you when you died. Uh, funeral playlists, uh, writing, poetry and things like that. Yeah. We had some of our young ambassadors um, sung songs and choreographed their own dances as kind of creative outputs to dealing with a topic of death. And a recipe book. Yeah, which talked about funeral recipes. Yeah. So that all kind of fell under this this hood of the dying to talk element of the research, um, which targeted, I believe, secondary school students to sort of 
bring the conversation to them, but then allow them to help you understand how they needed to work. So it was, like you say, this kind of core production. So you didn't go there with a, we're going to do this. It was kind of like, what do they need? And then build a toolkit around that. So the archaeology was a starting point in this, but it went off in lots of different creative ways, which was really exciting. And then we found when we, so we worked with uh, young people to um, co-produce resources which were then used in festivals of the dead, also which the young people took part in delivering as well. And what we found in the festivals of the dead is that as the school pupils were engaged in their artistic activities, that also created a space for them to talk about the topic. Um, and I think there's lots of research about how taking part in those craft activities can kind of be a forum for having a space to talk. It's the same principle that we see behind men's sheds today, where it's creating a space that um, while their hands are engaged and their eyes are engaged in something else, their kind of minds can wander and talk about what they need to talk about. So you're not just focusing on that, what sometimes could be like a cultural block almost to talk about um, bereavement. You're kind of providing a, a way to forget about that cultural block and allow that conversation. Going back to your original point about how you discovered this from your funeral archaeology, kind of almost going full circle back to the original premise which brought about this research and applying it to specifically the dying to talk in secondary schools. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it, Chris, actually. Some of the terminologies that have uh, come up um, in your research is these, this thing called a death cafe, which I find to be a really interesting term. It's not something that really I've ever heard before. It's interesting because it got me thinking immediately when I read the term death cafe. I was like, what's that? So I guess my question to you is, what is a death cafe? How does that work? And sort of what exactly brought them about and what do they do? So the death cafe movement was brought about a few years ago, designed as a safe space to allow people to talk. So it's not designed to be therapy, although many people find it therapeutic. And it's basically a cup of tea and a piece of cake and a chance to talk about death. But again, it's with a premise that it's not just morbid it's about celebrating life and in fact I think I've never laughed so much as when I've been running deaf cafes <laughs> here in Bradford. As Queen said it helps people to talk but um, the safe space allows people to if they do get emotional that's completely fine it's totally acceptable there are often times when people get tearful sometimes when people need to take a time out and um, often that's my role as a psychologist as well to make sure people are okay and if they do need to be go away and chat separately that's what I'll do just to make sure everybody leaves happy and safe and well but it's a cathartic experience and um, people find it actually rather than it being really upsetting it just releases something that they've been bottling up and they don't even realize or they can they are talking with people who have had a similar experience and it's a it's kind of of being recognized of being seen of not feeling so alone and I think that's what makes people emotional is oh my goodness there's other people who have done what I've done who experience what I've experienced who have felt what I've felt and it can release quite a lot of um of grief never a bad thing to have a safe space to talk in and know that you're not going to be judged know that you're not gonna people aren't going to look at you negatively for having these emotions or these thoughts and then having that ability to be able to assist people if it does get a bit much for them I think that's 
super important and really sort of insightful to sort of see how that might work and how that can help people. So that's a few of the different things that you've done previously. So you've got the Dying to Talk, the Deaf Cafes, these workshops and surveying people before and after to kind of give us a, a picture of what the broader research is doing. But then this is still ongoing and still evolving. So what's in the pipeline for the future that you're aiming to do? So we've still got work ongoing. We run monthly deaf cafes in Bradford and we take part in events such as a Being Human Festival or the Unify Festival. Um, and we, we've got plans in the pipeline for new audiences. I'm really keen to work with primary children of a funerary sector. And we're just about to launch our toolkit which is aimed at counsellors and psychologists to use as part of their continuing professional development, but they can also use it in their therapy room with their clients if they wish to, or interested individuals can also access the resource. And we're also um, thinking of taking this in a, in a new direction, which will be to look at how archaeology and ethnographic examples um, of the body and food can help people talk about their experiences of body image and food and uh, eating disorders potentially because we know that with people who have eating disorders they have a very hard time talking directly about their experience so using examples from around the world and from the past could really facilitate these discussions uh, so we're working with um, colleagues in Nottingham and Manchester universities on this at the moment as well. It's really interesting to sort of see applied in very real real terms how studying the past and studying what has come before can help inform the present and the future and help us all be better people, have better coping mechanisms, more resilience and more well-being. I look forward to seeing what this research can do in the future. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me a little bit today about everything that you've been up to. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks, Chris. So thank you all for listening and thank you to our wonderful guests, Karina and Ellie, for joining us. Uh, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching University of Bradford. And we hope to see you in the next one. Take care, everybody.